This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Feminism, what exactly is it? Is it an important movement? And why do some see it as a dirty word? I'm Dashan Johan, and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Sivanandi Tanindran, the Executive Director at Arrow, which is the Asian Pacific Resource and Research Centre for Women. So, Siva, feminism. Now, the word has become a little controversial in recent years, but before we explore the controversy, um, what exactly is feminism? I think that, you know, on, as a big picture, you can say that, you know, feminism is described as like a system of ideas, right? That oppose norms and values that uphold male privilege, you know, which is also known as patriarchy and the subordination of women in family and society uh, due to that patriarchy. So feminism calls for the transformation of social, economic, political and cultural structures that uphold this male superiority and aim to reduce and eventually eliminate, you know, sex-based discrimination against women. So, uh, yeah, so that's partly what uh, feminism is. I'm sure you've seen many of the T-shirt slogans, right? Uh, <laughs> yes. So men of uh, equality do not fear women, right? Or something yes. like that, it goes. So I think that it's also important to note that a feminist is not necessarily a woman and being a woman does not make one a feminist. So it's a type of thinking that people either, you know, adopt in the way that we look at society. Uh, and um, while feminists oppose the ideology of male superiority and privilege, they're not necessarily anti-men. So uh, 21st century feminism is uh, a little bit beyond gender equality alone. It actually challenges all forms of oppression and is concerned with the development and emancipation issues, right? For example, you have seen uh, feminism, feminist, you know, uh, kind of support, uh, anti-racism, uh, anti-colonialism. And even um, as recently, you know, we were also involved as Arrow as a feminist for a people's vaccine, because looking at the vaccine inequality that, you know, uh, global trade structures are not only um, uh, centered on the global north, but are also like, you know, uh, through these capitalist systems, which are heteropatriarchal type of systems that we are resisting, right? So I think that feminism takes a lot of concepts and tries to um, uh, work across so many different issues that kind of build up and maintain that power superstructure. Right. Now, you brought up two terms, um, equality and also equity. So what's the difference uh, between the both and why are they both important? Yes. So gender equality kind of refers to equal chances, irrespective of one sex, for access to and um, control over social, economic and political resources, right? And these equal chances or equal opportunities also include equal protection under the law, right? Mm-hmm. Uh Gender equity is something more about fairness, right? So it considers both men and women's different needs to achieve that gender equality. Uh, And gender equity is sometimes referred to as being an integral part of what is called substantive equality, right? Where the goal is to achieve equal outcomes in terms of life opportunities. But we have to recognize the diversities within and across different uh, gender identities and catering to these. See, for example... 
boys and girls may have the same right to enroll in school, mm-hmm. you know, so they enjoy that formal equality. However, substantive equality may be achieved only when girls are provided either with bursaries or financial aids or scholarship to ensure that in circumstances of limited resources, they're not kept back from school to make way for, uh, you know, their brothers or the males in their families to have that opportunity. Okay, now if we turn back the, the clock a little bit, right, and let's look at the history of feminism. Um, when did the word get coined and why? Right. So the term seems to have been widely used in Western Europe and Britain towards the end of the 19th century and the earlier 20th century to describe women's movements for equal rights in suffrage. Right. And uh, in that 19th century, 20th century, I mean, there were a lot of things that we take for granted today that the suffragists and the feminists actually fought for and won. You know, so just earlier on, I talked about how boys and girls may have formal equality in enrolling in school, right? Mm -hmm. But, you know, for many, many years, women could not enroll in university. And even when those women, some of them very uh, uh, esteemed women, I mean, they enrolled in university, they were not allowed to graduate with a degree to their name. So so this uh, early movement in the 19th and 20th century is something that, you know, won for us many of the gains that we recognize today. So if today as a woman you're able to hold a bank account in your own name and only in your own name, uh, you're able to hold a property in your name, if you're able to apply for a job, you're able to actually tell uh, your employer that you need to be able to hire me despite my uh, sex, right, without discriminating against me. Right. Uh, these are all things that were fought for in the 19th and the 20th century. And of course, ultimately, the right to vote, right, because mm-hmm. that was where the suffragist movement was uh, located in, is the fact that uh, men could vote, but women, unless... In, and in some countries, only if there were single women, like there were single women in the house, then they could vote. But married women very often could not vote because, you know, their husband's vote was considered as their vote. <laughs> so it's like, so even so, all of this was the 19th and 20th century uh, battle. So that's when um, the term was coined. Equality in, in general is something women have been fighting for for a very, very long time. I mean, you brought up voting in, in the US, for example. Women weren't allowed to vote until 1920, I believe. And, and you know, which is fairly recent given that they held their first elections in 1788. Feminism or the push for equality and all that, it's been there for ages. But it seems like the term feminism has only become part of a wider cultural zeitgeist over the past 10 to 15 years or so. Would you agree with this? And if yes, how did the term really gain popularity among the masses? Yeah, I think that, uh, uh, well, uh, maybe we should start the discussion with the waves themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So um, if I'm I'm sure around March 8th, whenever we do uh, these radio shows or these, uh, we will always like premise and say the first, uh, you know, uh, Women's Day was celebrated in some like early, early part, right, Right. of um, the uh, century. And that was basically about uh, women's equals rights to work because women were working in the factories and, um, you know, and they faced many unsafe conditions, right? So those early women marches were very much about the labor rights of of uh, women. 
And um, and you also mentioned the suffragists, you know, uh, fighting for the right to vote, which is something that we take for granted today. But I'm sure that you've seen the movies and I mean, people have heard the stories, right, where, you know, these women were incarcerated for asking for the right to vote. You right. know, uh, many of them, when they in, uh, when they underwent hunger strikes, they were actually force fed. So it's not a right to be taken lightly, you know, that uh, women have actually suffered and died in order for the rest of us to enjoy that. So in the first wave, you had that. And I think that there were a lot of conscientization. You know, every generation uh, goes through a process of uh, a moment of awakening and reigniting and relating, you know, uh, their individual uh, story of oppression to a larger societal story of oppression, right? So in the second wave of feminism, you know, there was all about this, uh, which emerged in the late 60s and early 70s. And, you know, and then there was a global kind of character to it in the 80s. And then you had a third wave, which was about the 1990s, and it coexists. I mean, so the second wave, third wave, and the fourth wave of feminism, I mean, are all like... um, the different generations of women who are actually existing uh, in society currently. And they're all running kind of concurrently together, actually, because uh, it's a very small period of differences, right? But what the waves signify are the periods of intensive activity when the large groups of people were mobilized around the feminist political agenda. So the fourth wave of feminism is usually marked by the Me Too movement, right? Right. So this brought again to light uh, why the fight for gender equality remains critical in today's world. And, you know, and this was also is because uh, women were entering the workforce in greater numbers. And to ensure that the workplace is a safe place, safe space, right? Um, laws on sexual harassment and sexual assault in the workplace needed to be introduced and nuanced uh, alongside the existing labor laws. As we know, the movement itself spread from the U.S. to Europe and to India and to, I think, it has permeated almost every country in the world, right? And it should lie that this was a behavior associated with power. Mm. So I think you're talking about Harvey Weinstein in uh, Hollywood or MJ Akbar in Delhi, these were powerful men. You know, they were smart men. They were accomplished men. In fact, they were men who many in society looked up to, right? Uh, But they utilized that power to harass women and elicit sexual favors from them, right? And it was a culture of, you know, power and impunity that kind of was brought to light, you know, by, by that movement. And that will had a global moment at that time, right, where the realization amongst women hit that this continues to be the current reality of women and girls across the world, that we are subject to men in power, whether that power is at the family level, whether it's in the school, whether it's in uh, at work or, you know, even by uh, politicians who also make light of uh, sexual assault and sexual harassment. Hmm. And um, I think that uh, alongside that, we also had that powerful image. And I think we, you know, chatted briefly before the interview started, right, in the 2016 election, and the demonizing of Hillary Clinton by the Trump campaign. That's right. It was particularly misogynistic, you know, it was decrying her abilities, her appearance, you know, the chance of crooked Hillary and asking her for her to be locked up, if you remember, right? Reminded how, you know, even in a country like the United States, which uses women's rights as a bedrock of their foreign policy. 
that there was miles to go even in the United States, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I remember, you know, the moment, you know, there were many, many media images of, you know, women and girls in the U.S. crying when Hillary lost because I think it really hit home uh, how they were not able to go through that final barrier that uh, in order to get a woman elected to the highest position in the country, right? Right. Uh, but what did they do? I mean, they organized, right? And if you remember, you know, they organized the Women's March on the very same day as uh, Trump's inauguration, right? And uh, it became, again, I think, a worldwide call to all of us around the world that, you know, uh, we have to indeed march again. We have to go through the 60s and the 70s again to have our issues heard and to be counted as equal citizens in our country, right? Um, and, you know, Trump was, I kind of, I guess, a kind of a gift to the, <laughs> gift to the women. <laughs> because I think a few days after that, he, uh, he kind of uh, uh, signed the global gag rule, which kind of um, uh, does not allow U.S. funding uh, to be used, um, you know, for uh, abortion services no matter what. Right. right. And that launched another global movement, which was the She Decides movement, where many other uh, Western governments and governments in the global south, in Africa and Asia, uh, kind of said, well, uh, I think women should be have the right to decide. And, you know, you, Mr. Trump, and your Republican uh, group does not get to decide what women in my country should be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. So that, again, reinforces women's agency, voice, and choice, you know. So I think that these were like some of those moments that made people very, very much aware of how uh, gender equality remains to be uh, an agenda that uh, has not been achieved. And, and it's so easy for people to say, oh, look, you know, you have, uh, you know, you have uh, women who are presidents, you have women in parliament. What's your battle really about, right? And to trivialize the kind of work that needs to be done. So um, I think that uh, that's where that recent popularity of the word feminism or the terminology feminism has come again, you know, but I think it's a uh, well-deserved, it's uh, we need it. And um, it, it's um, something that it's uh, kind of a joy to see because for a while it was like kind of a passe to be feminist, but today it's uh, cool to be feminist. <laughs> yes, it is very cool to be a feminist indeed. Um, on that note, we do need to go for a very quick break. I'm speaking with Sivanandita Indran, the Executive Director at Arrow, and we'll be back with more on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dashran Johan and with me on Zoom is Sivanandi Tanendran, the Executive Director at Arrow. And we are talking about feminism and why some see it as a dirty word. And and this is interesting, right, um, um, Siva, because um, pretty much based on what you we've discussed, you know, over the past 10, 15 minutes or so, is that feminism is essentially the push for equality between both genders. Um, it's about empowering women who have, um, you know, for the longest time perhaps been the minority among the genders. They have been the marginalized among, among the genders. But something I've noticed over the past couple of years, perhaps, is that feminism or feminist has become a sort of a dirty word for some people. You hear things like, gosh, you know, these feminists are at it again. You know, what happened? 
Well, I think that uh, there's a lot of negative stereotyping. I think there was a lot of negative stereotyping uh, as feminists, as, you know, bra-burning, man-hating women, you know, uh, who are very strident, you know, and this keeps being perpetrated as well. I feel, you know, when someone identifies as a feminist, uh, whether they're male or female, they're making a very conscious choice, you know, uh, and it's a message that they send to, uh, you know, the person they're communicating with, uh, you know, when they say, oh, I'm a feminist. And I think that that's uh, important because of the, they're saying that despite this negative stereotype, I still would want to say that I, you know, am a feminist, right? Mm. Um, and it's very clearly because, you know, feminists are people who won't stop t- talking, we won't stop questioning, we won't stop pushing the envelope, and we keep going at it. Even uh, when many people may be uncomfortable with the conversations or the topics that we uh, we bring up, right? And very often, cha- what feminists uh, we are doing, you know, we are challenging the status quo, you know, to question and to think about what is it that we say that the fundamentals of our society are, you know, and whether it is at the family level, at the community level, or at the level of government and national politics, right? So those questions sometimes challenge people to force and, and force people to rethink, you know, these principles and ideas that we are deeply cherishing, you know, and mm. we've deeply cherished for a long time, uh, you know, uh, we, we kind of rip it apart so uh, and, and analyze it or dissect it, right? Right. Uh, even a simple thing, like, for example, when you say family is the foundation of society, you know, and, you know, when people say that, you know, politicians say, oh, the family, we need to preserve the family. It is not that we feminists don't have a family or we don't love the idea of a family, that we don't found families. It's just that our idea of what a family should be like uh, may be very different, right? Right. So, and, and we force people to say, you know, this family that you're holding so dear to your heart and to your political agenda, isn't this where the abuses of women and girls take place, right? I mean, where do we learn discrimination if not in the family? You know, where do we learn gender roles if it's not within the family? And the family is a site of, you know, unequal distribution of resources, of attention, you know, it is also the site where incest and sexual abuse also take place, right? And mm-hmm. domestic violence takes place. So we then, as feminists, often say, hey, look, we need, you know, legal structures to make sure that uh, family is an equal place for everyone or is a ha- happy place for everyone, is a safe space for everyone. And hence, uh, it kind of uh, does away with the idea that, you know, there is this, you know, natural, organic, beautiful, harmonious organizing principles in the universe without (laughs) us having to like kind of look and, you know, fix it. So I think that that's one of the reasons. Right. The second is, of course, uh, in many countries, definitely uh, conservatives, political conservatives and uh, religious fundamentalists who are in politics will very often say that, you know, feminism is an imported agenda. Right. you know, it's, you know, it's a white agenda or whatever, you know, so uh, and hence uh, it's not natural, organic to, for us to be feminist. But as I was saying, you know, these are global movements because in the story of uh, our own oppressions, 
we can relate to women across different countries, right, uh, about what that happens. Like, for example, you know, uh, domestic violence was a unifying issue across all countries that we have seen. We've seen early marriage is a unifying uh, issue across all countries. So in this, we can see that the way that the patriarchal structure manifests itself at the, even the micro level or the macro level is very similar. Mm. And that is how we can link, you know, what happens in the family at a local level to what happens to the family at a global level, right. you know? Siva, do you think um, one of the reasons uh, feminism have got, uh, has gotten a lot of pushback, um, you know, recently especially, but I, I think it's the pushback has been there for, for a very long time. I'm wondering if it has anything to do with people, and by people I mean men's, um, privilege being challenged, uh, their, their position in society as this dominant gender that benefits from the power imbalances. I'm wondering if this is one of the reasons there's been a lot of pushback against feminism. I think uh, definitely in some ways, because, um, you know, when you're privileged, you know, equality seems like a step down, isn't it? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but the point is that most men also need to rethink their role in uh, society. Are all men privileged? So that patriarchal system is not only about uh, men versus women. Huh? That patriarchal system is also about uh, men of a particular class or elite class being more privileged than one from the grassroots, right? Mm -hmm. Or more able-bodied men are more privileged uh, uh, compared to men with disabilities. So there are actually many, many men who actually would benefit from an equal rights type of approach to how society is organized, then they know, right? Mm -hmm. So equality can be a term that frees both men and women from not only gender norms and gender roles, but all other forms of uh, oppression, which are actually kind of stifling uh, our potential. And I think at the heart of this question is, what type of relationship do we want to have? I mean, not only with the opposite sex, but how do we want to relate to the people around us? You know, is it, do we choose uh, a sort of relationship that is framed on power and domination? Or would we choose one that is based on more equal rights within a relationship? And this is in like all facets of our life, right? How do we relate to children? How do we relate to people who are younger than us? How do we relate to people who are, you know, uh, less able-bodied than us? Uh, how do we relate to people who may have a migrant worker status, which of course puts us in a higher status, right? So all of that is uh, our relationships of power, you know, and all of us are in some relationships higher up in the power structure and in some relationships lower down in the power structure, right? So I think that if we look at that, you know, trying to have this idea that all of us should be more or less interacting to each other as equals uh, is something that's really, really important. But it's a, a, it's a, it's a difficult thing to, I'm, I'm not saying it's an easy journey. It's not a, even an easy journey for me, you know, because when we talk about dismantling other forms of power structures, I may just go and say, oh, my God, you know, I'm an Indian in Malaysia and I'm female. Oh, my God, that makes, you know, they're all of this, uh, all of the dices are loaded against me. But I have to also recognize that there are others that exist in that same, how do I say, in that same ecosystem 
that I actually enjoy some power and privilege over and how do I handle it, right? Mm. Uh, how do I handle power and privilege when I have it? And what type of relationships do I create? You know, understanding the power and privilege that I hold and to treat uh, others like I would like, you know, those with power to treat me, you know, basically. Right. That's why uh, it becomes like a kind of a difficult conversation because we're always asking people to think, you know, and it's difficult to be thinking all the time and understanding how much of power and privilege you may have or not have. So on the one hand, we have this pocket of people, um, men perhaps, who are... they're worried, you know, they're, like we talked about, that their position in society may be challenged and that's where the pushback comes from. But on the other hand, there is, I've, I've heard, you know, from, from even some like mutual friends and things like that, where they, you know, when you talk to them, they're not ex- exactly a bad people, they're not a misogynistic people, they're not toxic people necessarily, but they seem to have a problem with the, with the, the whole feminist movement, the whole women's rights movement as well. And they, they ask questions like, um, so, so why is everything about women's rights these days? Um, why is nobody talking about men's rights? Or they ask questions like, or oh, even when we watch movies, it, everything is about minorities, everything is about uh, women's rights, everything is about having women directors and this and that can't we just make movies and enjoy movies how would you respond to these kinds of criticisms so most of the norms in society for so long have been about men's rights you know so the counter response is how do we look at women's rights in order to say what about access to resources what are women's rights to access and resources in this You know, what about women's rights and access to resources in um, uh, social, political or economic manners? Right. Hmm. So that's where the women's rights versus men's rights came about. And till today, I know that it is very difficult for us to unpack what goes on um, under the layers of things. But I'm sure you have read people like, you know, Uh, Christina Criado Perez, right, Mm -hmm. who's talked about how data in medicine, data in science, data in artificial intelligence, all privileges male. The male is the norm. Exactly. And women are a subset. So many of our needs, many of uh, uh, the realities and the articulations of women have not been counted in medicine, in science, and many of those things which are considered generally uh, meritocratic space. Because uh, many of these, uh, how do I say, uh, streams of thinking and uh, academic development say, oh, this is about meritocracy. You know, if you're good, then you're there. If you're not good, then you're not, you know. Uh, But we have realized that uh, over the years that there is a need to bring in the voices to interrogate what that norm that has been set up, you know. So I think that's what uh, uh, the thing is about you know, bringing that women back to be equal with regards men right. uh, is is about. So uh, there is, of course, you can see like, oh, every time a woman wins an Oscar, we had a woman director win for the best picture, right? Yes. Uh, and this is like, you know, and can you imagine? And so if the response is, oh, my God, what is it about women directors? Can you imagine we have never had a woman director win the Oscar for the best picture? Exactly. After what, 60 years of the Oscars or something like that, people throw up their hands and say, what's it about these women directors? One, <laughs> you know? 
Well, she's the second woman director actually to win Best Director at the Oscars and the first Asian woman uh, woman to win the award. But hey, you know, two is not that much better than one. So your point still remains. So for me, I feel like, you know, uh, I think like, well, give us another 60 uh, women directors and then we'll stop talking about it. Exactly. And that's what I tell some of my friends as well, right? Because when they ask me, you know, why are there so many or why is this? Everything is about oh, women superhero, women action hero, women this, women that. And I said, we never had to want that because since the time we were born, Every single action hero, every single superhero, every single whatever that we see on screen, role model, big action stars, they are all males. They are all men. So obviously, we are not going to be like, oh man, I can't wait for the first male superhero and get all excited. So I, I tell them, like, imagine growing up not having, right. you know, when you watch on screen, no, like someone to you can relate to, someone you can aspire to be because your gender is not even represented on screen at all. But here's the thing, Siva. It, it isn't just men who are, um, you know, anti-feminist sometimes. Like you mentioned earlier, just because you're a woman doesn't make, make you a feminist, right? It's, it's not mutually exclusive. Um, a lot of women don't like being associated with that term as well. Um, I, I was about to interview a guest once, a filmmaker, and I asked um, if I can call her on air, uh, refer to her as a feminist. And she was like, no, 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 I, I don't like to be, you know, I don't like to use that label and things like that. Why, why do you think this happens? I think that, uh, I mean, like, you know, um, I had mentioned it earlier, usually the uh, choice to identify as a feminist is always a very conscious choice, right? And uh, you can say like, hey, you know, that person actually, you know, talks about equality all of the time. I mean, like, why would you not want to be identified as feminist? Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, as I said, it's a very much a personal choice. Uh, I myself don't force others to identify oh, as feminist. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, I think as a feminist, I can't force them. to. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Forcing someone would just go against the principle of feminism. <laughs> exactly. But I think that uh, for me, I feel very... Uh, um, uh, okay, I had a life in a magazine before I joined Arrow. Uh, and although, I mean, I was working in uh, different sorts of uh, activist circles. Um, and it was very interesting because uh, in my magazine, I was very privileged that I met a lot of uh, CEOs and managing directors. I mean, very powerful men, right? Mm -hmm. And then after I joined Arrow, and um, it happened that I met this person who's... Um, incredibly privileged, a very rich, very accomplished man. And I remember then he asked me, but what are you doing now? Because he knew me in the magazine role, right? And yes. so uh, what are you doing now? So I said, oh, um, I work for a women's rights organization. And what happened was this man who's so much older and who so much, um, I mean, I really, Mm -hmm. Even till today, I mean, even if I'm an NGO leader, this person is way far more powerful than I am, right? Right. He literally took like two steps back from me because wow. it was about that. I mean, like, you know, because once a woman identifies as a feminist, she's actually sending a message to the world that I know my rights and uh, I'm going to make your life difficult if you try to, you know, uh, I mean, you, you have to be conscious in the way you behave with me, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I think that uh, this 
this was a it, it it sends a reminder that we not only interrogate the power structures in a theoretical academic way we are uh, questioning the power structures every day in our daily life with the people around us right so it is an identity i think sometimes women say oh i don't want to be like that you know <laughs> uh, but you don't have to be like that all the time of course so i think that that's one aspect of it because you know feminists we are difficult women uh, and we are troublemakers <laughs> so it's not something that i mean it goes with the territory so maybe not everybody wants to you know uh, wear that crown right. yet in their life uh the second is of course because um in many um how do i say uh in the case of the imported agendas then you know if you are a political figure you may not want to identify as a feminist because then it just becomes easy for you know uh the conservative religious uh, parties to label you as a uh running dog for the west right mm. so or the western liberal agenda and you don't want to like kind of uh carry that baggage with you, with you into your political career so i mean so there are different ways i think that why women do not want to uh embrace the feminist um uh label or they are maybe anti feminist themselves and of course there's a lot of um you know there's other indoctrination that's in place in society isn't it which tells you that you know oh you can be equal but different you know you don't have to ask for equality you know or, or our uh social religious uh, cultural setup is such that you know actually we esteem women and we hold them up in a pedestal you're already on a pedestal why would you want to come down to equality i mean these are things that are fed to women right mm. so i think that there are many reasons why women themselves uh, don't always identify as being feminist right and do you think there is also the fear by some um especially perhaps uh, more the more conservative side of society that you know feminism stands against what have been religious and cultural norms for centuries so for example ideas of marriage or relationship sex um what's considered um you know appropriate clothing for example or indecent clothing you know things like that do you think feminism is anti-religious and anti-cultural norms I think that uh the thing is uh what feminism is anti it's anti control of women's bodies and women's choices and women's decisions right <laughs> so um whether it's uh uh it, it's whether it's religion whether it's culture whether it's uh traditions you know uh many of these uh big labels only helped uh to kind of say that women did not have autonomy over their own bodies right mm-hmm. so as you said you know whether what you wear you know is just cut too short you know who decides that who decides what's decent or indecent if it is not right. the powers that be in society right uh who divides according to what article of clothing you wear whether you're a decent woman or an indecent woman right who decides that because of that indecent clothing what type of punishment how you needed to be punished whether you needed to be touched you needed to be groped or you needed to be raped or you needed to be assaulted or you needed to be killed because of that right so i think that um that's the uh, uh issue that feminists have always tried to like kind of fight for and this is evident throughout all of the different waves is that whether uh who made the decisions around who you fall in love with right mm-hmm. who do you decide to marry when do you decide to marry if you decide to marry at all 
how many children do you choose to have if you choose to have children at all right so those are kind of the key decisions that kind of uh that that women uh, i mean feminists you know always advocate that the woman herself needs to decide these matters for herself right, right. and yet you know that for those women who decide very differently if you don't marry that there's something not right with you and that's why you are sitting on a shelf you know uh, so uh, or for example if you decide not to have children that you are called a selfish woman right mm-hmm. so this is selfish that's why you didn't want to have children and then you must think like you know i'm actually very selfless that's why i didn't want to have children because i'm saying nobody needs to look after me in my old age right that's so right. i think that that's a uh, part and parcel of um why uh, if you ask me it's not so much anti religion or anti culture but it's rather anti um uh this uh, control of one's bodies and decision making yeah because ultimately it is it all boils down to feminism is about choice right to empower women to make decisions for their for themselves and and you know it's it's feminism doesn't say that for example i think people have this warped idea of what feminism is and that people think that feminism says that okay now every woman out there must wear mini skirt for or now every woman out there must not you know for example if you're a religious person who wears a headscarf uh, you know some people say oh feminism means that every woman out there must be you know must remove their headscarves and must go must be like super liberal in in that sense but that's not what it is right feminism ultimately says that whatever decisions they want to make whether they want to wear a mini skirt or whether they want to cover from head to toe just using clothing as one of the examples that ultimately the decision should be in the hands of the woman and they should be able to make make choices for their own bodies Exactly and you know and this is where you know that rights uh, example maybe i try to articulate area it uh, it, ca- it comes into play right mm-hmm. and we talk about clothing so let's say feminists in france with this uh, burqa ban right yes. so we would say that you know give women the right to decide in that context and yet in the same article in clothing in iran we would say well let women have the choice not to wear the burqa right yes. so it's the exact same thing that you're talking about so why is it that uh, how can we actually ensure that women's voices and choices and agency are taken into consideration uh, uh without the state kind of like you know uh, putting a, a message out there on how it needs to be done uh and you're absolutely right that you know uh <laughs> we don't say uh everyone wear a mini skirt is just like we don't say everyone please take contraceptive methods and we don't say everyone have an abortion right mm-hmm. so <laughs> but <laughs> but we do say that women who want to have a, or to want to wear a mini skirt should be able to wear a mini skirt without being uh harassed without being uh catcalled or without being made to feel that they're going to get raped if they wear a mini skirt you know so i think that that's where uh the choices come into play and i think that's an excellent way to wrap up our conversation today many thanks for chatting with me today siva thanks so much dashran it's a pleasure to be with you again that was siva nandita nandran executive director at aero which is the asian pacific resource and research center for women um and we were talking about feminism what exactly is it and why do some people see it as a dirty word so if you missed any part of this show and you can download the podcast on the bfm app or bfm.my you just have to search today i learned once again i'm dashran johan and this has been today i learned on bfm 89.9
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.